Yeah, it's nice to be in person. It's good to see so many people here. And hello, everyone outside. It's nice to see you as well. And hello, everyone joining us on Facebook. Um, I'm excited because I've been, I've been feeling this series a little bit. I don't know about you, but um, it's been great to sort of go through and talk about what, what's the role of the church? What is the role of the church? Because that's, that's what our series is. Um, we've been kind of on this home base sort of a verse that's going to show up here in just a second, which is Acts 2, verse 42, which says, it basically tells us what the early Christians were doing when they first met. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so this is our third week of the series. Um, the first two weeks we covered what, what were the apostles' teaching, because they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we talked about, last week, Elliot um, did such a great job, thank you, Pastor Elliot, of talking about fellowship and um, how the church devoted themselves to fellowship. And if you haven't listened to those two, we always say this, but I really encourage you to do so. I think this is a really formative series. So if you haven't listened to those two, you can go to the podcast, you can go to the YouTube page, and really just take some time if you're driving to work even. Like, that's a great time to even listen to these. And I would really suggest, if you're going to watch Elliot's from last week, that you watch the YouTube, because he brought out this like sweet Venn diagram that was all colorful. I even texted him after last week, and I was like, dude, that was so great, but way to set the bar really high. <laughs> and now I've got to follow it. So if you're wondering, I don't have a colorful Venn diagram today. Um, we'll just let Elliot be the expert there. But today we're going to be talking about prayer. I know it's a little bit out of order. Next week, Nan is actually going to be bringing us the word about breaking of bread, which I'm stoked for. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about how the disciples or how the apostles um, devoted themselves, or how the church, sorry, devoted themselves to prayer. And i got to make a confession before I start. I am no prayer expert. Prayer intimidates me. Prayer is like, it's a little bit mysterious to me. Like, I often I don't get it. And I hope that doesn't discredit me for today, because I promise I put a lot of work and research into this. But I just want to be honest with you. Like, this is something, I don't know if you're like me or if I'm the only one, but I struggle. I struggle with it. And it didn't help me. When I was a little kid, I got super confused. Because when I was like, I'm talking like eight or nine years old, I had this little orange bouncy ball. And if you're old enough to remember, it's like when you got jacks, those little jacks that you played with, and you bounced it and you picked up the jacks, like that little bouncy ball. I had one of these in my garage. I kept it in a coffee can in the front of the garage. And I would take it out to the driveway. And I would like just pound it as hard as I could on the ground and then pretend like I was catching a fly ball. Or I'd throw it off my backboard that was above the garage on the basketball hoop. And I would like see how many bounces I would need to do before I could go catch it. And I don't know. I, just, I was a weird kid. I loved catching stuff. And so one day I was out there and I had thrown it against the ground. And it took a bad bounce. And it went over to my front yard and landed right into this bush by the house. And it wasn't a huge bush, but it was bigger than me. And I was like, I saw it go into the bush. So I go over and I start looking for it. And I'm like, moving aside all the branches of the bush. I'm looking, I can't find it. And I'm super bummed out. Because I love playing with that little orange bouncy ball. And pretty soon I just gave up. And every once in a while I'd go out again and just look for it, because I really wanted to play with it again. I couldn't find it. And it was in Colorado, and eventually winter came. And so I kind of forgot about it. But then when the springtime rolled around, I was outside shooting hoops one day. And I remembered the little orange bouncy ball. And I'm like, I'm going to find it. I know it's in there. But before I go over, I do this thing I've never done before. And I stopped, and I go like this. God, I really love that orange bouncy ball. If you could just help me find it, I would be so happy. Amen. And I'm walking over to the bush, and I kid you not, I, I'm 10 feet away, and I see it. It's like on the outskirt of the, it's not even buried. It's like right there. And I'm like, 
what? <laughs> There's no way. Now, to be clear, as a 43-year-old man, I do not believe that God supernaturally moved that bouncy ball to this spot. I don't. I don't. But as a nine-year-old kid, I thought I had found a magic prayer bush. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I would really love to have a new Wilson Jet basketball. And I opened the bush and, ah, oh, it's not there. So I'm just saying, it confused me. Like, this did not help. And it still confuses me. I don't, I don't often get it. And you might ask, and it's a fair question, that why did you want to do this this week? Why did you want to preach this week? And the answer is really, I just really wanted to. I really wanted to dig into this. I really wanted to understand why was prayer included in the, the four descriptors of the early church. And as I dug into this text this week, I was not disappointed with the answers that I found, and I'm so excited to share it with you today. I do need to tell you this. I rarely have an original thought. <laughs> and so most of, a lot of what I got today came from people a lot smarter than me. I read a lot of books, I listened to a lot of sermons and podcasts and kind of put everything together. And um, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he's also a pastor of a church in Oregon, was super helpful in forming this. So was Pastor Brian Zond, who is a, uh, a preacher in um, St. Joseph's, Missouri. Like a lot of people spoke into this. Um, and I just want to give credit where credit is due. But what I learned, first of all, is that not every translation of Acts 2.42 says prayer. A lot of the translations say the prayers. And so like, when I saw that, that, that did something to me. So like any good Bible college student, I went to my interlinear and my lexicons and looked at the original Greek. And what I found was the part of speech used for that part of the verse is a definite article in the plural form, which means the correct translation of that really is the prayers. So verse 42 should say they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. The prayers is really specific. Prayer can be a little bit vague, right? A little bit general. But the prayers indicates that the writer is referring to either a set of specific prayers or at the very least, a certain way of praying. And this should lead us to a really logical question, at least it led me to a question. Then what were they praying? If this is the prayers, what are they praying? And I think a really logical answer would be, let's see what Jesus says about it. And so I want to move to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 5. And this is Jesus talking. He begins by telling his audience, when you pray. It's the first thing he says, when you pray. Not if you pray. Not, you know what, you really should pray. Now Jesus assumes, and rightfully so, that people are already praying. He doesn't need to tell them to pray. Jewish people prayed. Non-Jewish people prayed. The pagan world prayed. This is not a lesson about like, hey, you know, you guys should be praying because Jesus knows it's already happening. Even now in the United States, I looked up a bunch of stats, but it was going to take too long for me to show you. But I looked up a bunch of stats that indicate that far more people pray in the United States than people who attend religious services. Which tells me then that if that's the case, then when people are going to church, for sure the church is praying. That's just kind of a given. And so then it kind of occurred to me, if, if being devoted to the prayers is one of the four things that they talk about in Acts 4, then there's got to be something to it. There's got to be something really significant about it. And we should probably pay attention because Jesus, spoiler alert, is about to tell us what sets apart from others the prayers of actual Jesus followers. 
And so back to Matthew 6. When you pray, this is Jesus talking, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into the inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. See, Jesus first tells us what not to do. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. And side note, I just thought this was super interesting as I was looking it up, because I didn't know this. The word for hypocrites in the Greek is hypokrites. And hypokrites, it refers to a stage actor, literally a performer in Greek and Roman literature, or a theater. It's someone who wears a mask. You act one way, but your life is really different. Jesus is like, don't be like that. These people want to look extra holy and are trying to set themselves apart by putting on a show that they're better than everybody else, but this is not what superiority looks like in my kingdom. Stop it. They get seen by everyone acting holy. That's their reward. There's nothing else for them. And then he addresses the pagan world. See, pagan prayers to the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses were like ridiculously long. It had to be super eloquent because the assumption was that the gods hated you. And so you had to work up these really great prayers just to get the gods on your side. And Jesus says, this too is unnecessary. The Father knows what you need before you ask. There's no need for these super long, really fancy prayers to get him, fancy prayers to get him to pay attention. So if this is how not to pray, then how should we pray? And Jesus, of course, answers that question by giving the people an actual prayer to pray. Not an uncommon practice by Jewish rabbis, but what was uncommon was the contents of the prayer, which we call, of course, the Lord's Prayer. And when we continue in Matthew 6, the next verse is verse 9, and Jesus says, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then there's an extra line that's not in all the transcripts, possibly added by the Christians later, that some translations include, that says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now this prayer, this is familiar, right? Like most people know this, even a lot of like non-church going people know this. And because of that, it's become sort of mundane, sometimes sort of meaningless, which is tragic because there's a whole universe of meaning and brilliance packed into this little prayer. And at its core, it's inviting us into something revolutionary and life-changing and the very opposite of boring or mundane. And it's actually really fascinating if you study where this prayer comes from. And I want to show you something. I want to move forward in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew 22. Because in Matthew chapter 22, some of the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus into saying something that will discredit him as a rabbi or as a teacher of the law. It's kind of like politicians in the United States gearing up for primary season. You know, like they're from the same political party, but they're trying to find like trash on their opponents. And so they're trying to find some sort of flaw in their policy or in their platform that will in some way discredit them from representing the party. 
Same sort of thing is happening here. These religious leaders are trying to prove that Jesus has no authority to speak about the law and the people should not be listening to him. Now, for context, there's over 600 laws of Torah. And one of the biggest debates in Jesus' day was about which of the 600 laws was the most important. And the Pharisees conclude that by their interpretations of Torah, Jesus is breaking some of these laws, like he's healing people on the Sabbath. He's hanging out with ceremonially unclean people. He's eating with dirty people. And their goal is to kind of trap Jesus and expose him and trick him into admitting that he doesn't think the laws of the Torah are important. So here's what they say to him. Verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, undoubtedly, the Pharisees are loving Jesus' first part of the answer. That he pulls straight from the book of Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Because now they can pounce and they can say, Aha! And point out all the ways that Jesus is breaking the laws. But before they have a chance to get him, he continues. And he goes right back to Torah, to the book of Leviticus. And he says, the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus offers a second part of the commandment, it's just what it is. It's the second part of the commandment. It's not some hierarchy. It's not like, first, this is most important, love God, and then less important underneath it is love your neighbor. No, they're connected. It's one command that can't be separated. The most important commandment is actually two interconnected commandments, to love God and love your neighbor. This is why the Pharisees lost this confrontation that they were so sure they were going to win, because they could easily say that they followed part one but they followed part one at the expense of their neighbors. In the minds of some people, adhering to the first part of Jesus' answer meant that followers of the law could ostracize, oppress, degrade, even dehumanize others to gain power and prestige and to do it all in the name of the law, all while feeling pretty good and pretty righteous. What Jesus is saying is that Relation to God is interwoven in relationships with other image-bearing human beings. Loving our neighbor is how we actually and practically love God. It's what Jesus came to literally show us how to do, and it's why he simply can't separate the two. So this, okay, hold on to this. This, my friends, is completely encompassed in the prayer that Jesus teaches his followers to pray. Take a look at the prayer again. It's quite plainly and obviously broken up into two parts, two distinct parts, that completely reflect Jesus' answers that he gave when he was quizzed about the greatest commandment. Check out the first half. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Part one is all about loving God and our desire for God's lordship and authority to invade our world and our reality, just as it was meant to be in the beginning of creation when heaven and earth overlapped. And then the second half, the second half says, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Part two, the second half of the prayer is all about how the kingdom of God comes to being in the world through me and through us. The assumption is that the church, the people praying the prayer, begin to become the answers to the prayer. If the first half of the prayer is all about who God is and what he is doing in the world, then the second half is about how I will be a part of what God is doing in the world. Okay, now hold on to that, and let's go somewhere else. I want to show you something really interesting. This is the Kaddish. The Kaddish is an ancient Jewish prayer that predates Jesus. So people were praying this long before Jesus came along. And let's just read through this. And I want you to think about it and see if you notice something about the Kaddish. May God's great name be exalted and hallowed. In the world he created according to his will, may he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the house of Israel speedily and soon. Amen. You recognize this. It's not just me, right? Do you recognize that this is basically the first half of the Lord's Prayer? So notice that when Jesus teaches us to pray, he doesn't omit this. He's, he's like, yes, let's orient ourselves first and foremost to God's mission and to God's will and pray for the kingdom to come. But Jesus says, you're not done yet. The second half of the prayer is like a creed that Jesus establishes. He adds it based on the movement he came to instill, and he tells us how loving God is actually expressed. How is, how is God's kingdom going to come into being? Well, it's by us. It's by us loving and caring for our neighbors. Let's look at the second half again. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, I cannot pray, give us today our daily bread, and then see someone who doesn't have daily bread and just ignore it because I have my daily bread. I can't pray this prayer and then look around the world, look around my world and see people lacking food and housing and basic human rights and just keep my head down and say, man, that's too bad. I hope somebody does something about that. And when I pray in the Lord's Prayer for forgiveness, I can do that. But in my next breath, I'm confronted with those whom I have failed to forgive, and I'm forced to deal with my own sin and brokenness. Do not lead us to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Maybe no evil is coming to me today. And maybe I'm in a place where I'm actually embracing who I was created to be. But it doesn't say deliver me from evil. It says, deliver us from evil. If evil is being done to those whom I share this world, then it's my responsibility to step up and stand in front of the bulldozers of oppression and dehumanization and hate and prejudice and exclusion, even if those things are somehow misconstrued as following biblical principles as we see that continues to happen so prominently in the U.S. American church today. God is not cool with me praying. I love you, God and then ignoring the suffering that's all around me because the command to love my neighbor is intimately connected with loving God. And I know this because Jesus said so. And he gave no addendums, no exceptions, no exclusions. And he asked me to pray this prayer so that it sticks 
And so there's no escaping my role in transforming myself and the world around me to look more and more like the coming kingdom of God. This is why we should be devoting ourselves to the prayers. Look at this quote from a pastor I referenced earlier, Pastor Brian Zahn. The purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we want him to do. The purpose of prayer is to be properly formed. In fact, in Matthew 6, when Jesus uses that word pray, you should pray like this, in the Greek, that word is a combination of two other Greek words. The first one is pros, which is to move towards a goal or a destination, and the second is yukmai, which is to offer a request. So when we put these two together, pros yukmai, and you're praying this specifically to God, it's literally to interact with the Lord by switching human wishes or ideas for his wishes as he imparts divine faith. See, common prayers like the Lord's Prayer, and there's more. The Psalms are filled with them. But common prayers are a beautiful and helpful practice we can utilize as a means of forming our community or our expression of the church into one that both emulates and reveals Jesus to those in and around us. It leads us to like-mindedness with Jesus, molding us to be more and more like him and more and more like the people we were created to be. Now, I know there are other forms of prayer besides common prayer. There's spontaneous prayer, there's prayers for healing, there's prayers of lament, all good. Like I said, I don't understand them all because there's also prayers for finding orange bouncy balls, apparently, but... (laughs) I don't know. But if you look in the New Testament, look at the prayers of the New Testament, even spontaneous prayers of these people are drenched in Old Testament language. Like praying the prayers is an important and rich practice for Jesus' followers to begin to learn the language of God and of his coming kingdom. Even Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. And there's a ton of meaning packed into that, which I can't go into today. You know, when Jesus answered the questions about the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, he pulls from Deuteronomy 6. And Deuteronomy 6, chapters 4 through 7, it's going to be up on the screen, it's the beginning of something called the Shema. The Shema was a declaration that was prayed and is still prayed today um, in Judaism, or it's a regular practice in Judaism, the Shema. And you're going to recognize it as soon as you see it up here. It says, Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall repeat them diligently to your sons and daughters and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Do you see what it says that these words should be on your heart? How do we put words on our heart? Or how do we know things by heart? Like we repeat them often, right? Like like memorizing. And this gets a really bad rap in modern Protestant culture. Because we're not down to recite something over and over again. In fact, we sort of look down on this practice, don't we? Like, this is just meaningless repetition. But repetition is the point. Look here, look here at the Shema. At the very least, how many times a day are people praying this? At the very least, at least twice, when you get up, when you lay down, morning and night. 
And then it even says when you sit, when you walk, throughout the day. And then just to like drive this point home, look at, I don't think I have it on here, but just listen. Matthew 50, or sorry, Psalm 55 says this. Psalm 55, as for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me evening, morning, and noon. So 500 years after Moses, King David is praying three times a day. 500 years after David, the prophet Daniel is praying three times a day. In fact, he gets caught praying three times a day and they throw him to the lions. And the New Testament, there's so many references to people praying like a midday prayer. I think it's literally like three in the afternoon, the midday prayer. And I can assume they're praying morning, midday, and night. Jesus doesn't criticize the practice of common, consistent, or repetitive prayer. He criticizes the people who are doing it with insincere motives. Think about it. You can't stand on a street corner in the middle of town and pray this prayer to garner attention because by the time you've drawn a crowd, it's over. It's not filled with fancy language. It's not long. It's actually really short. This is not meant to take up our entire day. It's meant to remind us multiple times per day that to be loving God is to love our neighbors. It's brilliant. It becomes a habit to consistently interrupt the rhythms of my daily life to remind me about my role in bringing forth the kingdom of God. And because we are the church, I'm wondering if we can step into this practice every day. Praying this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Because I think that Jesus is serious about this. It doesn't feel like a suggestion. If we want to be properly formed into the people and the church that we were created to be, that actually represents Jesus in the world, we need to be constantly reminded of our purposes in bringing about the kingdom of God. A kingdom that looks nothing like the power-hungry empires of our world, but looks like a humble servant king who would sooner die than stop loving people, even the people who killed him. Now, before I finish, I want to address one of the questions we raised at the beginning of this series, which was this. What does the church, existing as it was meant to exist, look like to the rest of the world? I think it looks like people who love their neighbors as a result of being formed, at least in part, by the practice of common and consistent prayer. So then the world won't be changed by seeing me on a street corner with my arms raised, drawing all kinds of attention as I pray. No, the world is changed as a result of my daily, quiet practice of prayer in secret as I'm reminded to love God by caring for those around me. Now, as a teacher and as a coach, I have a rule that I never ask my students or players to do something I'm not willing to do myself or something I've done before. So I want you all to know that for Lent this year, for Lent I rewrote the beginning of the Shema and I rewrote the Lord's Prayer in a way that was really impactful and influential to me, without, hopefully, without losing the intended meaning. And then I committed to praying it each day of Lent, the 46 days of Lent, from, from Ash Wednesday to Easter, I committed to praying it three times a day. 
And it's been a life-altering process, which is why I'm really encouraging you to take up the practice as well. I'm going to share with you what I wrote in a minute, not yet. I'm going to share with you what I wrote, but before I do, I want to tell you just one of the ways that participating in this practice changed me. There was one evening when I was about four weeks into this practice, and Vanessa, who is my spouse, my partner in life, she came up to me and asked if we could talk about something. And she shared with me an opportunity that she was hoping we could step into, in which we could care for some of the unaccompanied minors at the southern border of the United States. <clears throat> and I immediately began to think of all the reasons that we couldn't do that. I'm an Enneagram 6. I always think of the worst-case scenarios. And so my mind automatically went to how this is going to negatively impact me, how it was really uncomfortable. I didn't, I didn't want to do it. And I wasn't feeling it. So I gave Vanessa the Christian answer, which is, let me pray about it. <laughs> and I'm completely against her proposition. But as I'm walking away from the conversation, down our little hallway, I literally got the chills. Literally got the chills, the goosebumps. My heart dropped, and it hit me. I've already been praying about this. In fact, I've been praying about this for the last four weeks, three times a day. And I went back to Vanessa, and I told her all this, and, and I said, if, if this is something that allows me, or allows us to participate in the coming kingdom of God, if this is a chance to love God through loving my neighbors, then I am all in. I would not have come to that answer or even gone through that process if I wasn't praying those prayers every day. It felt sacred. In praying this prayer, the Holy Spirit had shifted something in me, orienting me more towards the kingdom of God. So what I want, what I want to do is I want to put up on the screens here what I wrote. And, you know, we can even make this available to you through the newsletter or through the Facebook page. And you're welcome to use this. You're also welcome not to if you're like, dude, this is lame. Like, whatever. Like, that's cool. Like, that's fair. But you could also just pray the Lord's Prayer straight out of Matthew 6 or straight out of your mind if you've memorized it. It doesn't take very long. But let's commit to doing this and let's just see what happens in our community. And maybe like one time a day maybe twice a day. If you're really feeling it, I would encourage you to go for that third time, too. And maybe I'm the only one who wasn't doing this normally, regularly, and if so, this has been really good for me. <laughs> but if you're like me, yeah, jump into this. And may we be a church that is transformative through our prayers that shape us into the brothers and sisters that love God, love each other here, and then care for those outside our doors as well. So here it is. I'm just going to let this be the prayer that closes it out this morning. And first is the declaration, the Shema. Shema, hear and act. The Lord, Yahweh, is the one true God. And his kingdom, where love wins, will reign forever and ever. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Love the Lord with all your being as that love manifests itself in the ways that you treat others, with generosity, with compassion, with empathetic kindness, and with grace.
And keep these words in your heart. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away and when you go to sleep and when you wake up. Carve them on the doorways of your home and on your gates. Tie them to your wrist. Let them be a symbol on your forehead, the emblem of your character. Shema, hear and act. Our love-filled creator God, may we bring honor to your name. May your kingdom's way of being also become our way of being. May what you want to happen be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Out of your generous abundance, may all of us have the provisions we need for today. And forgive us to the extent that we forgive others. Lead us on the path that you created us to walk, that we might evade the temptations of the evil one and reject that which serves to detach us from our true selves, from the people that you created us to be. For yours is the kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. And yours is the power that's revealed not through violent conquest, but through selfless agape love. And yours is the victory that not even death can extinguish forever. Amen. I, I, uh, I recently came across an article, Dave, Dave, Dave shared it um, a couple, last week, this week. Um, that I've been kind of uh, marinating on. And one of the things that the article talked about is the idea of how um, like solitude is like an antithesis of individual. Like the way to combat individual, individualism is by spending time with God in solitude. And I think a lot of the things that where we see pride and selfishness and arrogance and all that stuff, it... it it comes from a place of like individualism, you know, and and the only way to break free of that um, is isn't by thinking about myself more, um, but it's to spend time with God in solitude. And um, and Matt's example of that is is, is like perfect, right? Because like we all have like these existing fears, anxieties, um, shame um, that just hit inhibit us our prejudices that inhibit us from doing what god wants us to do and it's in that time of solitude time of prayer time of meditating on the word god's word where we see our individual being shaped and formed and molded more and more into the likeness of christ and so um as we as we go into communion i, I encourage us church family to um Let's apply this. Let's apply this this week, this month. Um, we're about like halfway into June. Can we commit to praying the Lord's Prayer uh, for the rest of this month and just the next two weeks? Um, and so maybe one way to do that right now is um, can we, let's take a moment just to and imagine a space and a time in your house or part of your daily kind of rhythm where you could pray the Lord's Prayer. Maybe that's the moment after, instead of hitting that snooze button, you just wake up and right on the bed you sit and then you pray the Lord's Prayer. Or maybe it's a moment before you hit the alarm clock, you sit and you remember to pray the Lord's Prayer. Or maybe instead, maybe, maybe one way of doing it is instead of praying a, your normal, regular lunch prayer, like, hey, Jesus, thank you for the food. I look forward to it. Amen. Maybe that's the moment to pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, but I encourage you to do it. Um, this next couple weeks. And 
If you're all really down, maybe pray with your family. Maybe gather as a family. Hey, today, this moment, right now, for the next couple weeks, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Whatever that looks like for you, um, I challenge you, church family, friends, those of you here, outside, online, let's spend the next rest of this month of June praying the Lord's Prayer. And let's see what the Holy Spirit does in us in that process. Um, and uh, there's one idea. And in the beginning of uh, the Lord's Prayer, it talks about God's kingdom coming. And I, I really feel like the only way we see God's kingdom um, happen is when we do it in kinship with one another. So let's pray for God's kingdom in kinship. Let's practice this together in the next couple of weeks. And let's just see what God does. Let's see what the Holy Spirit does in us. Um, and, um, and to keep myself accountable, I'll... I'll, I'll try to like post that on like Instagram every once in a while um, and encourage you to do so also. And let's see, let's see what happens. All right, so with that, let's tra transition to the communion. So with that, let's get the elements out. Let's get this top layer off. This bread is made from many grains, from many fields, yet it was formed into a single loaf. In the same way, we are from many cultures, from many places, but we are one body. The communion is a reminder that the body of Christ was broken so that we would be made one in him. The body of Christ broken for you, and let's respond with the body of Christ broken for me. Once you're ready, let's peel that second layer. Also, the juice from this cup contains many vines, made by many hands, yet it pours freely. In the same way, let us pour ourselves freely, just as Christ modeled for us. May we be generous givers of our grace, mercy, and blessings to each other and to all. The cup of Christ poured out for you, and let's respond with, the cup of Christ poured out for me. And like we do every week, let's read this common prayer together to wrap up our time. Though we partake now from a distance, we long for the day to partake together in person. And though we partake now with partial satisfaction, we long for the full feast at the eternal table in the presence of God. Bow your heads in prayer. Abba Father, we, we gather together as a church body um, and feel challenged by your call for us to pray. Help us to find that space in time. It just doesn't happen, right? Help us to carve that space. Of our, of our day, of our routine, to go back to your word, to pray for your kingdom, to pray for your will, to pray for our daily bread, to pray for our debts that we, as we have been forgiven. Help us to pray against evil. And as you continue to meditate on those words, marinate in those words, 
I pray that your spirit would allow us to be more and more shaped into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. And it is this in whom we ask and pray in your son's name.